Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. Welcome everybody to Twitter Spaces. Um, tonight we're going to discuss uh, UK industrial policy. Uh, for the last 40 years, as I'm sure we all know, uh, British manufacturing, like that in much of the rest of the Western world, has declined significantly. Um, this had a huge impact on the British economy, our society and our politics, affecting areas such as uh, regional wealth inequality, productivity, indebtedness, and national resilience. I think it's very difficult to overestimate the impact this trend has had on Britain. So to discuss the matter today, and um, I hope to propose some solutions, we have four eminently qualified guests. Uh, first, making her Twitter debut is Miriam Cates, the Conservative MP for Peniston Stockbridge. Uh, Miriam Cates has been in the media spotlight recently, as I'm sure many of you have um, noticed, for her staunch defence of social conservatism which has led to the dubious honour of being uh, called the rising star of the right by The Guardian. However, I think what's less well known is her very persuasive calls for more activist industrial policy, especially in the steel industry, which has one of its few remaining strongholds in Britain in her constituency. Next, we have William Clouston, the leader of the Social Democratic Party. The SDP is at the forefront of calls for root and branch rethink of economic policy, and for a industrial and manufacturing rebirth at the centre of that. Uh, the SDP's uh, green paper, The End of Indifference, is, I think it's fair to say, a must-read for anybody interested in the subject. Uh, a third guest is Philip Pilkington, an economist and financial analyst. He has written for the New York Post, the American Conservative, the Critic, the Spectator, and he has a regular column for Unheard, uh, in which he often... Uh, discusses uh, global trade and deindustrialization, and just as often provides compelling and full-throated critiques of Western economic policies. Michael Taylor is also an economist who, after working in the financial sector, now writes an excellent substack called The Long March. Uh, it's, it, it's part economic analysis, part uh, fount of ideas, and part uh, a kind of a creed occur. Uh, but I think it's essential reading for anybody interested in the decline of the British administrative state, our debt-ridden economy, and how to fix it. So welcome to all of our four guests. Um, I'd like to give a message to everybody listening at the moment. Uh, the first hour of this space will be a roundtable involving the guests only, but then after that we'll open it up to the audience. So as you're listening to this, if you do have a question, please put in a speaker request toward the hour mark, and I'll add you. Um, unfortunately, Ms. Kate can't be there for the second hour, but um, everybody else will be, and those discussions are usually excellent. So uh, we are recording this, everybody. So there's a big red light that shows so in the top of this. So let's get started with, um, well, really the question of the current state of uh, British manufacturing, um, how we got he uh, here, and some of the problems that causes. Um, 
Uh, Miriam Kate, if I could start with you, please. Thank you. And I hope I'm using this correctly because, as you said, it's the first time I've used Twitter. So uh, if a few people could put a thumbs up if you can hear me. That would be very helpful. Well, I certainly can. I'm, I'm quite impressed we got it right first time. I, I think that shows a, 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 a rising yeah, star of the right. right's competence and uh, you're ready to go. <laughs> I, I um, yes, I, can I stay till half past five? So I'm happy to, to be involved in the discussion till then. Um, so, yeah, oh, so fantastic. Yes, yeah, so hopefully, uh, yeah, I can be around for that. So, yeah, so I grew up in Sheffield. I've lived in Sheffield all my life. And as most of you will know, uh, Sheffield is famous for the steel industry and still produces a lot of steel, although uh, employs many, many fewer people um, than it did uh, in its heyday. Uh, and I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, and I can remember the devastation that... Uh, the industrial policy of the time uh, wreaked on the city, not just the steel industry, but also coal, which was uh, a big employer locally uh, in, in South Yorkshire. And I can even remember rhymes from the playground that we used to sing in primary school about Thatcher <coughs> and what it's done to our, to our city. And so, you know, the decline of industry in South Yorkshire has had huge political consequences. Um, you know, it's, it's no surprise there are still only three Conservative MPs in South Yorkshire. They obviously think things are changing. But also the economic and social consequences have had a very long tail. And really what became our industrial policy from the 1980s onwards was, was offshoring, which, of course, made many products cheaper for big business and for government contractors. But for the families and the towns and the regions that had relied on industry and manufacturing manufacturing for their wealth and productivity, it was devastating. Uh, and an, an example of this is the town of Stocksbridge, which is in my constituency. It's about 10 miles north of Sheffield. It's set in the beautiful Peak District, but it is a steel town and the majority of the land in the, t in the town is still taken up by the steel industry. Uh, but it used to employ 11,000 men in its heyday uh, and now just 750. And that gives you a, a sense of the change, the economic change that the closure, or at least the severe reduction of the steel industry um, had on, on the town and the local area. And of course, the steel industry didn't just provide jobs. Uh, it also was a, a huge part of the social fabric of the town, whether that's building the football club, the golf club. Um, you know, everybody was involved somehow in this economic heart uh, of the town. Now, jobs have been replaced, of course, and like many parts of the country, we do have relatively high employment rates, particularly compared to historically. Uh, but the jobs that, that, have, that have been replaced, the, the steel industry jobs that have been replaced are not the same status. They don't offer the same security. They don't offer the same pay as steel work. So even though, you know, there's still relatively few jobs in, in steel, they do pay 50% more uh, than average in Yorkshire. So, um, you know, the industrial policy or lack thereof since the 1980s in steel ha has got us to a point where um, our industry is not producing even as much steel as we require in the UK. Uh, we're importing huge amounts of steel from abroad and the net consequence of that for areas like mine has been, um, you know, economic downturn. So how have we got here? Well, I think, you know, I can think of kind of four things that have led to this point uh, and led to the um, state that British industry is now in. First of all, uh, we measure the wrong things. We often talk about the mean, you know, the mean GDP, the mean wage or the overall size of our economy. But that doesn't tell us the truth about regional disparities or about what economic situations, uh, circumstances are like for, for ordinary people. We need much more intelligent ways of measuring our economy, you know, the range, the mode, the median, the, um, you know, the, the regional disparities that really tell us about how healthy our regions are and aren't just focused on the overall size, which, of course, is uh, now focused on London and the southeast. 
I also think high employment levels have masked the devastation of the uh, the breakdown of industry because I think you know it, 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 here in SW1, if employment unemployment levels were still astronomically high in the north and in the regions, I think that people would pay attention. But because they're not, I don't think there's been an understanding of uh, the lack of equivalence between the old jobs and the new jobs created in terms of pay, security, and status. Um, and then, of course, we had privatisation, which I don't think is a bad thing at all in itself. Uh, potentially, it could lead to higher investment. But actually, one of the results of it has been that a lot of our big industrial industrial assets have been sold off to foreign ownership. And again, there's nothing outright wrong with that. But foreign owners are, by definition, going to be less invested in the UK economy, the UK workforce and the UK society. And just to go back to Stocksbridge, the person who created the Stocksbridge Steelwork was a chap called Samuel Fox, who was a local philanthropist as well as uh, an entrepreneur and industrialist. And of course, he cared deeply about the workforce, whether or not the next generation would join um, his steel industry, you know, how good the housing was. Now, current owners who are, you know, not based in the UK, who have huge portfolios of assets around the world, of course, don't have the same emotional and social attachment to the steelworks. And so, of course, you then get less investment and it then uh, matters less um, in the local area. And of course, we've even sold off some of our own indus industries to nationalise foreign companies. So EDF. So there's been this quite incoherent policies around privatisation. And then lastly, I think, you know, as a politician, what strikes me is the narrative. So we, we often characterise industry as something that belongs in the past, uh, whereas actually it should be a key part of our future. And that in itself, I think, has led to fewer young people wanting to work in the sector, less investment, successive governments being blind to the benefits of industry uh, as they pursue a kind of shiny new future, which is universities and financial services. Um, and I think the, the kind of rise of the big corporates and big international firms owning uh, industry had given UK government and UK policymakers kind of less investment in uh, and a feeling of powerlessness in terms of what they can do about industry. So we are in a bit of a, 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 a bit of a difficult situation. Steel industry is still is still going. It's not going strong. Uh, and it definitely needs some help. Now, I realise I focus completely on steel, but that's because it's the industry I know about. But I am assuming that. Um, you know, similar issues are uh, at play in other industries. Right. So, William Clouston, we have um, exchanged uh, good-paying, uh, stable jobs for less well-paying um, jobs with far less security. And there's a general lack of understanding of the lack of equivalence uh, of these two sets of jobs. I mean, where are we and how has this happened in your view? Um, well, the, the word I always use is indifference, and uh, certainly Miriam's quite right um, in pointing out that quality of employment matters. I mean, we've got labour shortages in various pockets of the UK now, um, but to take a broad look at the city that Miriam's in and, and Sheffield, you know, we've basically exchanged 70,000 steel workers in the 70s for 70,000 students. And the key difference between those two are the steel industry was based on uh, productivity and uh, manufacturing, actually producing something to sell. And the uh, problem, the overextended university sector in that city, as many, many other cities are the same, is that uh, at least two of the three main sources of income for the university sector is based on debt. Um, so there are many, many problems that we've, we've talked about before. But I, I mean, because we've got two professional economists here, 
I, I thought I'd uh, talk about culture a little bit more and leave uh, Philip and Michael to talk about the economics. But I, I don't think we will solve this problem until we look at the cultural roots of it. And I think the cultural roots of it are indifference, uh, which I've, I've mentioned many times before, in a sort of cultural indifference to what is made where and by whom, and to, own, to who owns what. As, as Miriam says, uh, we've been governed by successive uh, uh, governments, which, 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 you know, are not, they're not bothered who owns anything, really, and, and they view the country as a shop, uh, really. What, what can we sell off? Uh, and that's a major problem. But I don't think we will solve any of this until um, there's a flip in thinking, a change in, in the attitude of mind of most of the governing class away from, uh, you know, their heads are full of free trade ideology. And as a consequence, they just often just don't get it. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you're, I mean, in all the, for instance, I'll give you a couple of examples. In all the debate about Brexit, the commentariat and most of the politicians were just concerned with uh, um, are you going to get a free trade agreement with X or Y, you know, the United States or whatever. And <clears throat> I've argued slightly contrary to that for, for some time is actually we need, I think we need a little bit of trade, uh, trade friction because if you, look at, uh, if you look at it dispassionately, if you look at the UK dispassionately now with manufacturing down at 9%, we're actually similar to the status of a developing country. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe we will reindustrialize if we keep the same uh, trade, international trade uh, regime that we have now. Uh, I just don't, I don't believe that's possible. Um, so I think you have to have a flip, a total flip in, in the attitude uh, of those that govern us. And they have to start caring, actually, about... Uh, again, I'll leave some of the economics to, to the next two speakers, but they have to care about certain things. It would never be the case in South Korea or Japan that they would have a situation where they'd ask um, a foreign state to run their railways or to build their nuclear power stations. It just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be allowed to happen. And it would be, on, it would be beyond the thinking of those, uh, of those states and the populations in them. And yet we've got to a situation where um, without any shame at all, any sense of shame at all, we uh, subcontract the, the running of our railways to foreign states. And, you know, until very recently, we've, well, I know EDF are obviously building the two big schemes that we've got up and running. And again, that's a sort of national humiliation. I regard it as a sort of economic capitulation in a nuclear industry that we started and dominated. And it seems to have escaped the political classes' minds and a lot of the public as well. That you know, it should not be the case that we're asking uh, others to do for us what we could do for ourselves. So, as I say, I think I really think we need to think culturally, and I think the free trade ideology, which, as, as Miriam says, actually, it just ended up in predatory capitalism. It hasn't really served localities very well. We have to have a change in thinking. Uh, and when we get the change in thinking, we can we can uh, reindustrialize. But you, the point I'd finish on is that you've got to want to reindustrialize prior to doing it. Indeed, we need an entire uh, change of attitude and culture and thinking. Philip Pilkington, your views? Yeah. Um, so, how did we get here? Uh, 
Actually, I think you have to go back quite far to understand how we got here. I think you have to go back to the Victorian era, effectively. Um, I think Britain kind of um, Britain became the workshop of the world and the greatest economy in the world um, based on a kind of mythology. Um, the idea was that 19th century was uh, an era of high free trade for Britain um, and the free trade created the prosperity. Um, I don't think that's really true. Uh, the prosperity of Britain was actually based on the empire. It was based on the imperial system. Um, and of course, there was many tariffs in place. There was a system of imperial preference in place. Um, but I think the way that um, that was sold ideologically in the Victorian era was as some sort of a, a, a free trade um, argument. And I think that's muddied the waters since. Um, a lot of conservatives want to go back to the 19th century and they think it's some uh, you know, free trade paradise. And I think that's why we get these kind of I'd, I'd call them fake solutions of, of you know, oh, if we can just get a free trade uh, a deal worked out with the United States, everything will be fine. I mean, no, it won't. So th that's where it starts. Um, then the uh, then the transition period is effectively the 20th century when the empire breaks down um, and when the American global hegemonic system, call it what you want, rises and, and America replaces Britain on the world stage. And at that point, basically, the imperial preference system is demolished and uh, British manufacturing has to compete in a world that um, it's pretty hard to compete in, actually. At that stage, the United States is, you know, we're talking 1945, right? Um, the United States is vastly more wealthy than Britain at that stage. Britain's uh, a debtor country due to the two wars that it's fought. It's in a lot of trouble. The st sterling is, is being replaced as dollar with dollar as the as the as the um as the world currency and um and britain can't really compete and so um there's a lot of kind of uh, state protection of industry uh at that point um but it all starts to kind of break down in the 1970s um a lot of people blame thatcher thatcher spread it sped it up there's no doubt um tony blair sped it up more than thatcher um, but the uh, but but basically what happens is that Br the british industry just finds itself in a bit of a pickle in the 1970s and as manufacturing starts to go down the toilet really um the trade deficits start to open up um britain can't maintain the Bretton woods peg properly 1976 has to be bailed out by the imf since there was still a, a quasi fixed exchange rate system in place at the time um that, that those weaknesses could be very much seen when we transition to a floating exchange rate system in the 1980s um, uh, those it, it, the hard constraints on foreign borrowing went away, and the trade deficits continued enormously. Um, the 1980s and 1990s, um, various attempts at free trade, openness, so on, continue to decimate manufacturing sector. At that point, I think the key to the whole thing starts, which is that um, Britain starts to rely heavily on financial services, not just for high-end jobs and to float uh, living uh, high incomes in the stock market belt in London, Surrey, Sussex, and so on, which prop up the rest of the country, but also the capital inflows into the city of London start financing the trade deficits. This really starts to build in the late 1990s, uh, early uh, mid to late 1990s under Blair. Uh, Blair comes uh, and, and it becomes the biggest problem for the country. And um, effectively what happens then is after 2008, financial services can't do what they used to do. 
um, and productivity flatlines. And we've seen stagnant productivity growth in the UK since 2008. And conversely to stagnant productivity growth, we've been seen pretty much stagnant real wage growth. Um, so now we can't, the country can't live on borrowed time anymore. It's not working. And actually, I'm quite nervous that there might be a reversal of capital flows at some point out of the city. Um, the current figures that are out today in the Financial Times show pretty he- healthy uh, f- foreign direct investment in flows from America. Um, but will they stick around in a recession? I don't know. The trust, um, the trust panic in the bond market was blamed on tax cuts. I don't think it really was about the tax cuts. They were poorly uh, messaged and it was poor timing on their part to do that. But ultimately, that was the quasi-sterling run. And that's why it sp- spooked the Bank of England so much. So I think, I think that's how we got here. Um, we're still living with those Victorian free trade ideologies to a very large extent, at least on the right. And um, and the problems are now at a point that I would consider completely critical. If something doesn't change in the next 10 years, this country is going to get vastly poorer. And the inflation that we're seeing, which is higher here than in Europe, certainly higher than America, it, it, primarily it's about energy. Yes, it's about the Russian energy, gas not being in Europe and so on. But it's exposing all these weaknesses. And uh, people are trying to fight for their wages, which I understand, and it's causing a wage price spiral, frankly. And it's um, it's really bad. So unless we can figure out some way to fix this, uh, this country is going to get a lot poorer in the next 20 years. Well, Michael Taylor, it's uh, how do you go bankrupt uh, slowly and then all at once? Uh, Philip Pilkington has said that... Um, it's we're really in a critical moment at the moment. It's getting very serious indeed. Uh, what do you have to say about this? I know on your Long March Substack, um, you've written very eloquently and forcefully about these matters. Yeah, um, first of all, uh, I'd like to say I agree with Philip on at least one thing, and that is the this great myth of uh, Victorian free trade uh, is it, absolutely mythical. Uh, Britain's Trading position was really built up uh, really from the 17th century onwards via the Navigation Acts, which were, you know, basically very, very restrictive about who could trade with whom and, and who could ship goods to whom. So, um, I, and I do think that the legacy of that sort of nostrum of saying, oh, free trade, free trade, free trade, is, is blinds us to a lot of what the world actually is. Um, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later, maybe. Um, I want to speak also to, to, to Miriam's point. Um, I, re- I respect what she says, but I think that she has missed two things that I think are really, really important. First of all, um, the consequences are absolutely extraordinary um, in terms of regional inequalities. Uh, and you'll, I'll notice that uh, most of the people on this call are from the north of England one way or another. And if you go around the world as I have and you see expatriated Brits, an awful lot of them are from the north of England. Why are they expatriated? Well, as Fiona Hill, another expatriated Brit, wrote in her book, There's Nothing for You Here. And for those of us growing up in the north of England in the 1970s and 1980s, you really had to get the heck out of, out of, um, out of the place if you wanted to make a living. Uh, Actually, let me tell a little story. Uh, my great-grandmother was 103 when I decided to go to Hong Kong. And I went to see her in the old people's home, and I said to her, Gran, uh, I'm going to work in Hong Kong. 
And she said, um, you what? I said, I'm going to work in Hong Kong. And she looked at me and said, um, couldn't you get a job nearer home? <laughs> it always sort of struck me as being a, a very good response. Sorry, the diversion. Look, one of the things you can do, one of the things that worries me deeply is that I think the British economy is no longer a British economy. It is several different pieces of economy. Uh, you can actually measure this by um, looking at the gross value added, the gross income value added at about 180 different regional levels. It's called the nuts three level. And you can do these things. And you can look at those household incomes and you can see how they've changed. And around in the 1980s, this was still, this distribution was still, um, technically it was a zip distribution, which is what you'd expect for a coherent sample. Since then, it's been gradually breaking down until I would say that Britain's economy is no longer a coherent sample. What does that mean? It means that what happens in, for example, SW1 probably doesn't work in Newcastle, probably has no contact with, 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 with what goes on in Newcastle. The, the, the levels of inequality have become so extreme that we no longer have a single working economy. And that means that we are now duty-bound to admit that you know, an economic policy isn't going to work because we don't have an economy. We have several economies, at which point you have to start thinking very seriously about regional policy and therefore about industrial policy. Okay, so the second point is that Miriam has sort of said, how did we get here? One of the ways we got here, one of the ways we stayed here and had this regional disintegration is because of policy. It is because of public investment policy. And the, the rules for where public money is invested are governed by a thing called the Treasury Green Book. And the Treasury Green Book essentially says to those who have shall more be given and to those who have not, nothing shall be given. So if you go and, for example, a couple of years ago, I was driving down the new M14 to Cambridgeshire. I'd, I'd never seen such a motorway. The landscaping alone, <laughs> I think, would have cost more than the entire highway's budget for the north of Eng England. Absolutely extraordinary. But that's because it has been policy for decades that public investment goes into London and the southeast, and if you're in the north, tough. Now, that, why does that matter so very, very much? Well, it matters so very, very much because each country, each region is vying for comparative advantage to attract industry. And how you do that is you do it through, in, essentially through infrastructure, through education, through providing levels of certainty and uh, lack of risk to allow investors to invest and, and build businesses. And systematically, and I do stress, this is policy, this has been policy. Systematically, the North has been not allowed to develop and to have the sort of infrastructure which is necessary to attract the sort of reindustrialization which ought to be at the heart of, of, of what happened in the British economy. In the 70s and 80s, and again I go back to Fiona Hill, um, she says very clearly, look, don't think that uh, the devastation of industries in the north of England was about the north of England. You saw the same thing in America in the Rust Belt. You saw the same thing 
in Russia um, for, for, for its rust, rust Belt. You saw the same thing in the industrial northeast in China. Same Rust Belt, same problems, wiping out layers of industry. The problem wasn't that. The problem has been that, that policy has specifically stifled and disallowed those investments which were necessary to then rebuild. So that's where we are now. We've split the economy so that you've got the regional wealth in the south and southeast, and then you have levels of inequality and, frankly, deprivation in the north, which are shameful. Now, in the north, we've been waiting 40 years, 40 years, for some kind of response. 40 years. It's, it's long enough. We need to change. And the good news for the rest of the country is that this, very obviously, is where Britain's low-hanging fruit now is. Okay, that's my uh, introduction. I hope it wasn't too fervent. No, not at all. I think it's, uh, it's exactly the sort of thing that we perhaps need. Um, I know that William spoke a bit about um, uh, globalization, I guess, uh, free trade. Uh, Michael touched upon it as well with the kind of a myth that uh, British industrial might in the 19th century was based on free trade, and, and Philip touched on it as well. Um, without wanting to start a bun fight so early, um, Miriam, you're a member of a political party that seems quite wedded to the idea of free trade. It, it, it certainly, uh, for most uh, Conservative MPs, uh, free trade seems to be um, a very important uh, a, a pillar, really, of the way that they would like to run the country. And indeed, it seems to have been uh, central to uh, the, the kind of the global Britain idea. Um, where do you stand on free trade? Because it does seem to me, at least, that uh, Western countries in general, not just in Britain, but many Western countries, with the exception of maybe uh, Germany, have, um, have have lost out on free trade, even the mighty uh, United States. I mean, uh, can we make adjustments to the kind of the global trade regime or or perhaps uh, policy changes, uh, Miriam, in your view, um, to, that would help British industry along a little bit rather than opening it up to much less expensive um, uh, competitors? Uh, yes, well, so in defence of my party, to start off with, obviously in a two-party system that we have got in the UK because of, you know, our first-past-the-post system, and I'm sure William's got something to say about that. Um, but in a two-party system, obviously the major parties are going to be a broad church. So, yes, within the Conservative Party, you do have people who are very wedded ideologically to free trading, uh, but you've also got people like me who are much less so uh, and believe that we should prefer Britain and our own industry and our own manufacturing in our own economy because every other country in the world is doing it why shouldn't we so uh, yes there are people like that certainly within the party but there is a there is a broad broad spectrum uh, of opinion and I suppose you know my comment would be that you know wouldn't it be amazing if free trade was possible but it isn't in the real world because uh, there is no such thing as as free trade you know every single market you can think of is rigged or distorted in some sort of way and, and why wouldn't it be because because countries do have different conditions different uh, employment laws all sorts of things that mean that you cannot have free and equal trade uh, between countries so I think it is it's an ideology I don't think it works in practice and as you said uh, most countries ha have lost out as a result, and certainly the regions of the UK. And just to kind of come back to what Michael was saying, I, I, I'm not 
quite sure on his point of disagreement with me because I completely agree that we are uh, that the regional inequalities in this country are quite phenomenal uh, compared to other Western countries, and it, there absolutely is a north-south divide, or rather, we should say a, a London and southeast divide from the rest of the country, and that is something that we should be focusing on with industrial policy, with with trade policy. So I, I completely agree with him on that. But yes, I don't think we should be going for free trade. I agree with you know reducing regulation and reducing barriers to business where they get in the way of uh, of growth and profit absolutely but not uh, unfettered free trade so I suppose the question is how do we use our um, trade and tariff mechanisms better to prefer British industry um, and so I suppose for you know for something like like steel there are obviously strong arguments for having steel safeguards um, now the government actually is moving on this so back in July 2021 the Trade Remedies Authority tried to get rid of quite a lot of the steel safeguards which would have put um, the UK steel industry in an even more perilous position now a number of us Conservative MPs actually did persuade the government to, to, to backtrack on that and the government is now changing the process so that the Trade Remedies Authority isn't just wedded to free trade but also does does take into account uh, the conditions of British industry and, and, and British jobs. So I think that's, you know, that's a the positive way forward. But, you know, it does beg the question, why would we not protect our own industry when, when other countries do? Um, sorry, you're going to come in. Yeah, I, I, I wondered, it'd be so interesting if you could just point out to your fellow Conservative MPs that although Ricardo's argument about comp the benefits of, of comparative advantage and free trade. It's a beautiful, beautiful economic argument. It's wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just wrong. Um, and it's not just wrong practically, it's wrong in theory, because once you have free flow of capital, free flow of labor, free flow of uh, intellectual property, there is no such thing as God-given comparative advantage. Every country has to construct its own comparative advantage. And if you don't do it, you will be a loser. I wish you could get that message across to them. Uh, because I'm sure these guys, you know, have, look right. at the Ricardo <laughs> argument and say, great, it's a lovely argument. They're right, it is a lovely argument. It's just wrong. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I am trying. And I think also, you know, I'm not an economist, so that, but from a political point of view... Um, you know, the ethics of globalisation and free trade are, you know, not, not particularly palatable. If you think, well, why are clothes that we buy from Bangladesh so cheap? Well, it's because of the conditions that people in Bangladesh work under. And any uh, company that attempted to operate under those conditions in this country would be shut down straight away. And yet sold as this kind of great liberalising uh, gift to the developing world, the fact that we are willing and open uh, to trade. And of course, it doesn't work like that. But I think philosophically, it comes from this idea that has become established, particularly on the right, uh, over the past 30 or 40 years, that we are aiming for neutral, whether it's social policy, uh, cultural policy, industrial policy, economic policy, we're aiming for something neutral. There's no such thing as neutral. You know, you either support industry don't support industry. You either support families or you don't support families. Uh, and we've come to this idea that the ethical thing to be is neutral. You cannot be neutral. And if you essentially take away the protection of your ordinary people, communities, you open yourself up to expectations by other countries who are. So I completely take your point. I, 
you know, I agree with you. And I, you know, there's lots of us trying to make these arguments, but the Conservative Party is a broad church. But I do think Brexit and the recent political trends are moving the centre-right in that direction. And, and COVID was another uh, line in the sand for that because we realised how much our secu economic security depends on having productive capacity ourselves, which, of course, we, we don't have. So I personally think, yes, we should be using the, the tariffs and the, the policies that we have at our disposals to advantage our own industry uh, because other countries are doing the same. Can I, can I come in? Yeah, I was actually going to bring you in, um, William, because you've spoken regularly and frequently about this um, specific area. So please, fire away, sir. Yeah, I, I think it's it's vital to get this um, on the political agenda, and I think I mean following up from what Michael said about you know individual pol national policies, uh, you know about how we invest and the green book and all the rest of it. I'm I'm very very keen that we get the the uh, policy the international policy on the, on the uh, agenda. You know, trade policy, um, the the way the single market operated, the competition rules inside the EU. All of these things are absolutely vital, and actually, I'd argue, were have been partly responsible for uh, demoralising various publics around uh, the West, in particular, and Europe, because because basically, what what um, the, the voter has been told is that the rules are beyond your grasp, and largely uh, through treaties and other things, that has been true, and it doesn't matter what. Um, sector you look at, actually, particularly manufacturing, uh, if a government, until very recently, uh, if a government, if a British government wanted to do something, there'd be a, a competition rule which would stop it doing it. And, um, you know, as I say, it might be boring, it might be, it's not on the on the political agenda, it doesn't get talked about very much, but uh, I, I, I never saw any point at all in leaving the EU uh, to, where you're escaping being fettered by uh, um, competition policy to, 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 to give those policies up to the WTO or any, anyone else. Um, just, to, just to give you a couple of sort of mundane examples, um, in the 70s when I was a kid, uh, the Class 43 Intercity 125 came along and it was built by British Rail Engineering and crew the um, diesel uh, technology was, was, I think it was made in Colchester. Uh, it was a British train and, you know, it was, it was um, providing jobs uh, and we actually exported the train to, uh, to uh, Australia and California and other places. But the point is that if you said, if a government until very recently, if you said, look, we're, we're just going to build our own train and our own factory, um, there would have been some uh, bureaucrat somewhere would have said, no, you can't, you've got to, or whoever, and we've got ourselves in a situation now where we Hitachi build uh, build our trains, and um, and, and we, we bolt them together. Um, so a trade policy is, I mean, there's nothing new in this at all, absolutely nothing new in it. All of the, you know, the tariff reform uh, stuff, the Chamberlain stuff, uh, 100 years ago was arguing about the same thing, you know, how open do you want to be? My criticism of free trade purists, in the, particularly in the Tory party, is that they really are ideologues in the sense that they put their ideology ahead of national interest. And I think uh, certainly multinational interest is not the same as national interest. 
And uh, to hear some of them argue uh, in favor of tre- free trade, when, you're, when your trade competitors, your major trade competitors are adopting a mercantilist policy, which is what China does, you could only really argue for that if you were sort of a, a paid-up member of the Chinese Communist Party, I think. I think it's absolutely insane. Uh, but I think reality actually is, is on our side. I think people are... Uh, are realizing and my best uh, argument for changing the policy is to just notice where we are now which is is not working right uh, philip pilkinson uh, the full disclosure uh, philip pilkinson's a co-host with me on a multipolarity podcast and one of the things we often talk about there is uh, perhaps free trade as currently uh, arranged has not benefited the Western world, or, or, or certainly not in combination with a range of uh, domestic and industrial politics uh, policies, which it holds. I mean, uh, I think Philip, where most of the people here are on the same page uh, about that, but uh, you know, how can we move forward from here, and what are the dangers, perhaps, of? throwing i mean is there a danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater here the, the saying look free trade hasn't worked we're just going to get rid of it we're going to go back to kind of blocks as the world goes multipolar or, or, or pull up the tariff barriers or or any of those things i mean i mean how how do we move forward from here for the what, what are the kind of policy solutions yeah i think like a lot of people got excited uh who were interested in kind of you know not having these enormous trade imbalances in the world they got excited when you know there was a populist upwave that seemed to suggest that we were going to move in some direction that wasn't you know neoliberal capitalism post 1980 or whatever date you want to put on it but i think as the as as times have moved on from then and some of the rhetoric that was expressed at the time has become policy especially in washington dc I think we're starting to see limits on it, and we have to be really, really careful of this because um, it's easy to whack up tariffs. It, it's an easy solution. It, it's just a change in tax law. You might have, have to have a fight in the World Trade Organization, but you know the U.S. have shown that they don't care about those fights. They're just going to tell the WTO to you know deal with it. Um, if you whack up tariffs and you don't have domestic industry, it won't spring up like mushrooms after rain. There's no magic beans here, and and I think that the I think that some people who are advocating uh, and not just advocating tariffs, but also thinking that tariffs are a solution, are are engaged in some of the um, are engaged in some of the um, same magical thinking as free traders. I think you have to be really careful, right? So an industrial base is a highly complex thing. That's why Namibia doesn't have one. And it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It, it takes deeply ingrained skills. It takes, you know, all sorts of things. It takes an education system that's set up to deal with it and so on. So I, I, think, I think really what needs to happen here is we need to focus on getting British industry back on track. And if that results in deglobalization, let it result in deglobalization. But don't target deglobalization. If you target an abstraction like deglobalization and you pull up protectionist drawbridges, you'll soon find that you don't make this stuff because you can't currently make this stuff. And you'll go poor. 
And the other problem with it is that the whole system that's been built up is awful. It's really bad. Don't get, like even the manufacturing that still exists in Britain, a lot of it is like just I think somebody alluded to it earlier, just putting stuff together here, importing a bunch of stuff from various places, putting it together and slapping a made in UK label on it. It's very misleading. But that's a really fragile system. And if you go in with a sledgehammer, really bad things can happen. So I think the only way of doing this without causing chaos and without making the problem worse is to target the industry itself. Say, how do we get this industry to be better? What does this industry need? What subsidies maybe? What tax credits does it need to compete with Chinese industry? Don't say I'm going to pull up the trade tariffs on those Chinese factories because you'll soon find that there aren't ones to replace them here. And you'll, you're, you know, the cupboard will just go bare at that stage. And what that will mean in real terms is higher inflation and lower real wages. So I think we need to be really careful with this. America seems to be going forward at full steam with trade war right now. And it's actually getting a little scary, honestly. And America might be able to survive that. I increasingly think it might not if it continues on its current path, because the American economy is incredibly reliant on imports, especially from China, capital goods, you name it. But Britain will not survive that. It just will not survive that, that kind of a trade war. So I think we have to be really careful here. You can be skeptical of neoliberal globalization, and you can also recognize that this is a very fragile, complex system that we have to be very careful about how we approach. Don't you like using the term, but dismantling it for want of a better term. Uh, Michael Taylor, um... Uh, you know, I, I, again, I think we're all on the same page with regards to the current system not necessarily working for Britain, at least, and perhaps for most of the, much of the rest of the Western world. But um, how can we move forward? What kind of solutions do we have for, in Philip Pilkington's word, getting industry back on track without taking a sledgehammer and smashing the whole thing to bits in a, in a way that might be quite dangerous? Yeah, yeah I, I, I take Philip's point. Um, one of the things that I've been, one of the things I've been looking at really quite closely, um, is how Singapore set about building itself as a, a successful industrial economy. Um, and one of the things I, 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 one of the things I've been reading about is is the in what you might call the economic architecture or architect behind Singapore's emergence in the 60s and 70s was a guy called Go King Sweet. Now, we all know about Harry Lee, Lee Kuan Yew, who was, uh, you know, the, the, the political genius behind Singapore, but the economic and financial genius behind Singapore was Go King Sweet. And he, um, uh, he, he would have loved, um, he would have loved to uh, hear what Philip was saying. Um, because he, 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 took, he took a very interesting view. He took the view that Singapore had to industrialize. If he wanted to build wealth in the economy, he had to, they had to industrialize. But at the same time, he realized that because Singapore was so small, you couldn't have any of these sort of import substituting policies which, if you like, were very crude, mercantilist idea. Um, those ideas were being tried and failing all around the world during the 60s and 70s. And Gokeng Si said, no, 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 we, 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 that, that, we, that can't possibly work. What we've got to do is we've got to concentrate on putting in the conditions 
where businesses are happy, businesses from anywhere are happy and secure to come and invest and produce. And um, he went through several iterations. One was, you know, to get the land sorted out and the, uh, the, the, the Johor Industrial Estate. But then he swiftly moved on to um, getting the education system right so that the, so that the education that people were getting would be, get progressively better as, as the industrial base uh, went on. So he, uh, he didn't at the time have any kind of thing, right, you know, we want this sector, that sector, that sector. He wasn't picking winners. What he was doing was building the infrastructure within which industry could flourish in Singapore. Um, and it was wildly successful. And one of his insights, I think, you know, is completely worth, you know, it's, it's sort of almost alien to the, to the um, Anglo-Saxon view. He didn't have a great uh, belief in the great swashbuckling businessmen, the, the sort of Richard Bransons who could, in, in, you know, or Elon Musk's who could, Invent an industry. That's how we're going to win. Um, you know, let the market rip and we will discover these geniuses who can... Who, he said, no, no, no. Actually, most business is about kind of fairly boring people just doing a job, a difficult job, competently. And that's what, what, you know, and we have to make the arrangements so that those people can prosper here. Mm. And that's what he did. And uh, it was very, very successful. So I think we should all be taking a look at uh, a leaf out of Gokeng Sui's book uh, and, and, and concentrating on providing the right infrastructure, the right environment, the right education system, the right upskilling, so that, and the right uh, security of policy so that industry, and I don't know which industry, with one exception, <laughs> so that industry itself can be, uh, can be secure in being able to invest and to be able to prosper over the medium and the long term. And if you look at Britain, of course, the shining example of precisely that is Nissan in, 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 in Tainan Weir. Um, uh, any idea? Does anyone know the name of, the, of, of, of Nissan's boss um, in, in, in the UK? I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> A great testament to, I think, the managerial competence of the man. So, uh, you know... Uh, we, we go back from this thing, don't go for the swashbuckling, don't go for the I pick this industry, don't go I pick for this man because Mr. DeLorean looks like a really good guy. No, build the infrastructure so that it will be sufficiently attractive to, to, to attract businesses which can grow. And of course, it is specifically that which has been missing for the last 40 years outside London and the southeast. Can I, can I come back? Yeah. Collingwood, yeah, just very, very briefly. Um, yeah, I entirely take uh, Philip's point um, contra sort of boneheaded protectionism. It's, it seems to me obvious that um, if you just slap up tariffs and you haven't got the capacity domestically to produce anything, you're in. You're all you just get in, you'll get inflation and it'll be a total disaster. Um, but I still think that uh, you know trade policy right on at the top level really really counts really really matters and um and if you don't believe me look at any peripheral uh eurozone state uh they didn't de deindustrialize every single year and um it's, i mean germany's done very well industrially but it has a a, a euro which is artificially uh depressed um a slightly different point but just to get back on onto this point about you know how do we do it um I, I see the problem, the, the criticism I have of our political class is that I see none of the 
uh, sort of preconditions, the basics of what you'd want in place to try and reindustrialize. So you might want, for instance, a, a coherent energy policy, just to even price uh, energy properly. I mean, you'd want very cheap energy if you're serious about reindustrializing, but we haven't got that. I mean, they've dilly dallied on nuclear. They just don't, you know, for, you know, a decade plus. Really, the time to uh, build nuclear power stations was during Blair's time. They didn't do it. Um, you know, skills training, ditto. You know, we, we far, far too many people go to universities. Uh, I used to run a, uh, for about 12 years an industrial company in Tyneside. Every single time we uh, advertised for, uh, you know, just a, a basic engineer, we got old uh, guys in their 50s who were marine engineers and things and who were time served or, uh, you know, good Polish or Czech immigrants in their 20s and 30s. There's virtually no one uh, on Tyneside that was skilled, you know, could actually deal with the basics of uh, hydraulics and uh, bearings. We hadn't bothered to train them. Uh, and so I totally take your point about backing sectors. Uh, I think there are several that I would say are low-hanging fruit, uh, w one of which is fruit. Uh, you know, the Dutch, if you look at the Dutch, if you look at the bilateral trade deficit we have with the Dutch. Yeah, okay, a lot of the you know, Dutch um, uh, produce, uh, you know, flowers and fruit and, and veg was based on cheap gas. But I see no reason whatsoever why if the UK government wanted to get Essex and Kent uh, to be to do the job that Holland does for us, they could do it if they want to. You've just got to target it and you've got to have a plan. And finally, yeah, that's 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 the point. I think we've 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 just been Partly, you know, to go back to where I started, we have a, a broken model because our thinking is wrong. Uh, and our thinking over the last 20, 30, 40 years has been terribly anti-planning. We've just had an aversion to planning and uh, very, very foolish, I think. And it's very costly. Indeed. Um, Miriam Kate, if I put you into number 10 tomorrow and, and, and give you free reign to be absolutely ruthless with the Treasury and the civil service, what um, ideal uh, world would you want or what ideal environment would you want to create to get industry back on track and to uh, create the kind of manufacturing and industrial strength that we need or at least what first steps would you take? Great question. Well, I think, firstly, we need the kind of industrial policy uh, that William was just talking about that uh, gives British industry a sense of, of where it's going, what support it can, can accept. And this kind of hands-off, uh, expect, sorry, this hands-off approach just doesn't work for big industry. You know, these are not agile tech startups. The huge amount of capital invested in their equipment and their assets and their employees, they can't change direction and pivot overnight. They need to know where we're going. And so a big problem that we've got at the moment uh, is that lots of big government contracts, you know, public procurement goes to overseas firms who then, you know, use steel and materials from their own firms in their own countries and British uh, manufacturers don't get a look in. So I think the first thing I do is to change the procurement rules, which the government is consulting on, to prefer British industry. Um, and then I think we just need to be realistic and honest about some of the, uh, the tariffs and the net zero policies that we have that really uh, put British industry um, at a 
disadvantage compared to our competitors. So energy uh, costs, William just mentioned, I know the steel industry, British Steel pays about 60% more for their energy than uh, Germany and France, so our direct competitors. Uh, and then we import a whole load of steel from China, which has double the carbon footprint, and then say, great, it's, you know, we've not produced it here, therefore it doesn't contribute to our, our net zero issues. So that's just completely wrong. It's just dishonest. If we import steel or other materials from abroad, we should count whatever carbon footprint uh, it has uh, so that our steel has an advantage because it is cleaner. So the, again, the government is consulting on that uh, for carbon border adjustment mechanisms. So I think that's a, a really uh, positive step. But essentially, we need an industrial policy that that prefers our own. And that includes training, that includes planning, yes, in terms of what regions are going to be good at what. But this is where we come back to trade tariffs. I completely agree with Philip. We don't want to be whacking on trade tariffs to have a battle with the WTO. And it's stupid to put trade tariffs on things that we don't produce. All it does is increase the cost of those. But where we do have an industry that would benefit from uh, encouragement and support and incentives for British companies to buy from British manufacturers, that's where the trade tariffs come into play to protect our industry, at least to give us a chance to build those industries uh, back up again. But I think this is where it does come down to political and cultural choices about are we going to prefer our own industries? Is there an economic, cultural and social and political benefit from producing our own? If so, then we have to be intentional about taking away the barriers uh, that, that, um, that, that allow these industries to flourish. flourish. I just, just finish on a kind of example from my own constituency. I said I've got this big steel industry, but I've also got lots of small bespoke manufacturers that produce very high value uh, things that they often export all over the world. And yes, they talk to me about energy costs and what a barrier that is and, and business rates, the fact that they, if they invest in their plant, they make it more valuable then they end up paying more tax. It's a disincentive to invest. But also they talk about training and young people and how even these businesses that do want to expand, that do have a massive order book, that do have great potential, they can't find the people to train up, to invest in, to become the skilled workers of the future. And one of their reflections is that our huge investment in higher, in, uh, in higher education in this country, I think £14 billion a year, has robbed manufacturing and industry of the status um, and the, the pull factor, but also the resource to train up the next generation. And we sell this great dream of higher education to our young people that, you know, you're, you can live, uh, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll at the, the uh, you know, paid for by the taxpayer for three, three years. And yet they find themselves in an enormous amount of debt. Third of them don't get a graduate job. And we've robbed uh, industry and, and tech uh, of the training budgets uh, that, that they could have had. So I think the first thing I would do is repurpose an awful lot of the money we spend on higher education for specific apprenticeships and training for our manufacturing and our industrial sector. And then sort out the, all the, the, uh, the policies, the green policies that, that really put our, uh, our, our manufacturers at a disadvantage. Well, yeah, indeed. I think education and the shift back toward um, uh, vocational education is, uh, you know, we could speak hours on it uh, in and of itself, really. I think it's such an important and, um, and uh, interesting subject. Uh, I want to touch on one of the points that you made, uh, Miriam, um, because you did mention the cost of energy, and I've read a, a bit recently about the steel industry and how, you know, energy costs in Britain are just making it flat, uncompetitive. Um, and Philip Pilkington, I, I, I know you're very keen on industrial policy, and we're seeing 
um, industrial policies in uh, certainly the United States, but also increasingly in Europe. Uh, countries like Germany and France have have always kept a certain degree of industrial policy, but now the EU as a whole seems to be taking the concept more seriously. But you're, you've detected, and, and getting back to the, the cost of energy, that the green lobby, or, or big green, as I think you call it, is starting to uh, hijack a fair bit of this. You were writing in the New York Post recently about... Um, the dangers that the green lobby would um, just make industrial policy its own and it it would become uh, green policy by the back door. Yeah, that's right. I, I think this is going to be the fight of the future. Um, we've had a big industrial policy bill, quote unquote, in the US, called the, Indust- uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and we have uh, Emmanuel Macron writing in the in the Financial Times that Europe intends on copying it. But it's not a an industrial policy. It's the Green New Deal that was pushed by uh, the progressive Democrats in the last election centered around Bernie Sanders. That's all it is. For every, for every $1 spent on manufacturing tax credits and subsidies, $6 are spent on green energy. And this gets back, this gets back to a point that I'm actually far less skeptical than some other people on here about subsidies to industry there's two ways of doing subsidies to industry you can pick winners not a great idea don't think that's a great idea i worked in capital markets for nearly 10 years pretty hard to pick winners capital markets aren't even that good at it another option is that you can find things that you are fairly confident you can make domestically and you can subsidize them think toasters right can britain make toasters i hope they can make toasters they can make rolls royce engines i hope they can make toasters so why not subsidize a toaster making factory you can you just go through the list of your imports and you can go can we do that okay if we can we should subsidize it there should be some model to get investment going in there i increasingly think private equity should be doing that and then costs subsidized by the state Anyway, we can get into that. But the, the key here is that the green, the green guys have figured out this, right? They've figured out that you can use the spending and taxation powers of government to change how people behave and spend in the economy. And their intention is to change the way that people behave and spend in the economy so that they conform to their green idea right and you can think of that broadly more people should be cycling on bikes everyone should have solar panels on their on their roofs and so on some of it makes sense an awful lot of it doesn't make sense okay so it's in fact i think nancy pelosi when the green new deal was floated called it the green dream well now they're backing it and it's enshrined in law in the form of the inflation reduction act Look, there's going to only be so much money to go around if we want to go down the industrial policy routes. There's going to be limitations on how many tax credits you can give out, on how many subsidies you can engage in. And if it all gets sucked up by what I called the big green blob in the New York Post, it's going to be an absolute disaster. It's going to be an absolute disaster. We're at a point in the West now where the imbalances in trade in our economies are downright dangerous. They have been for a while, but the chickens are starting to come home to roost. And to then go and repurpose your entire fiscal uh, structure to change your economy into something that has never been tried before, investments in completely unprofitable industries that can't work without government, but not just can't work without government. Obviously, my example of the toaster factory can't work on British soil without government, but we know toaster factories work elsewhere. And we know that 
the Chinese toaster factory sells the toasters to Britain simply because they have lower labor costs. It's, it's, it's not a speculative venture to try and implant a toaster factory in British soil. But, but, well, Philip, can I just stop you there? Actually, Britain does make toasters. Um, oh, no, I'm sure they do. I'm just using it, 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 it. Yeah, yeah they, 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 really, they really do. Uh, and I know because um, the owner of it is part of my uh, pub quiz team. No, no, I'm sure they do. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it as an example because I'm sure they also import toasters. And you could get rid of those toaster imports overnight if you wanted to expand the British toaster industry. It, you, can, you can go down the list on all these things. But the key point here with the green stuff is that I think that, that a lot of industrial policy is going to be hijacked by this because it's got a really good sales pitch. We can go on and on about why the green lobby is so powerful. I'm starting to think of it as most industries have a lobby. The, the green lobby is in search of an industry. It's a very unusual creation. So I just, I think we should be cognizant of this. And I think that if we can get to the point where we're talking about tax credits, subsidies, and so on for certain industries, I think we're going to run into the big green blob. And I think that's going to be the, one of the fights moving forward, really. Can, can I, can I uh, come in? Yeah, um, sure. And then I'd like to ask Miriam about this as well, given she's in the steel industry. But yeah, sure, William, go for it. Yeah, well, just just to backtrack very quickly. Uh, yeah, three cheers for, for Miriam mentioning, you know, bringing up this, this issue of the, the universities. I mean, the university, what David Goodhart uh, calls the university industrial complex, jokingly, is, is, is actually becoming just a major problem. I mean, it really, really is. It's distorting where we put resources. And Frankly, the university sector is mis misallocating capital. Uh, it's not socially useful to send half of all school le leavers to university. And, and, and it's, as I say, it's distorting uh, what we do in, 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 in a similar way uh, to um, the way that Philip is describing the green lobby doing so. The green stuff interests me. And, and the, the, it, 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 the Labour Party have come out and said that we're, we're not to grant uh, new licences for... Um, for oil ex exploration in the North Sea or gas or whatever. And they're, 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 it's, it's clearly a uh, politically driven, green driven uh, idea. I think it's a complete mistake. For, for I, I would say, for as long as this country is importing, I know we export a lot of oil, different reasons, but for as long as we are importing oil and gas, it would be insane not to use your own resources. I mean, it just it, it's nonsensical to have a policy like that. And I link it straight back into what uh, Philip was talking about, the dangers of some of the, the debt situations that we have. Uh, the, the American um, public debt, if you look at the graph and the line, I mean, it's, you know, the, the debt to GDP now is Italy level or beyond. But the difference in the trajectory is that Italy is stabilizing probably and the united states shows no sign of doing that whatsoever so at the back of this whatever your view on green policy uh it's it's absolutely reckless for some of these western economies to pursue costly malinvestment and just ignore trade deficits because in the end uh this could this could and probably will uh blow up in your face completely and and be counterproductive well, indeed, and that's the danger. I'd, I, I'd like to ask um, Miriam Cates, though. I, I mean, I read Ambrose Evans Pritchard in the uh, Telegraph, who's very keen on the potential of um, green energy, not just to save the environment, but to give Britain a real competitive advantage. We have very windy coastlines. Um, the efficiency of um, 
both solar power panels and also uh, windmills, offshore electricity generating windmills, kind of follows Moore's law. And his argument, I suppose, would be that we can build out these things and it can provide us with bucket loads of very cheap energy, ultimately. And, uh, you know, we could maybe have some small modular reactors for um, for baseload. Uh, then we can have, we can produce steel, perhaps in electric arc furnaces, uh, or we can develop new technology that produces steel from other means, perhaps using hydrogen as a fuel. Um, and we, you know, the green, uh, the green uh, revolution, so to speak, the green energy revolution will be beneficial. Um, what's your general view on that? I mean, do you think that's going to be a positive or negative? Or are you concerned about the dangers of, as William said, uh, following you know, green policy just for the sake of it and, and, and really doing more damage? Um, yeah, I do think following green policy for the sake of it is, is doing a lot of damage. You know, we, of course, we need to conserve our environment and look after it for future generations. Absolutely 100% agree. The problem with that at the moment that we've got in the UK is that we're obsessed with reducing our own emissions, uh, which only make up 1% of the overall world's emissions. And obviously, there are no borders in the atmosphere. So even if we were to completely eliminate carbon emissions altogether, it would it would be a drop in the ocean compared to uh, the problems facing the globe. And so we're much better off using our skill and our uh, and our assets and our kind of uh, our technolo technological know-how to create technologies to mitigate against climate change, to do carbon capture, to find ways of producing things at, at lower energy. So, yes, I agree with that, that we have the wrong obsession at the moment, which is with net zero rather than what we can offer to the world in terms of, of technology. I think uh, as far as renewable energy is concerned, I mean, we've got a long way to go before it is cheap, because at the moment we do have to have uh, gas to, to, to power up to to, um, to, to when we don't have wind and solar. So yes, you know, small nuclear is, is the ideal, but we're not, we're not there yet, so we need to be realistic. Uh, but I think, you know, there is just this big divide between um, government policy, or rather Whitehall, and what's going on in the real world. And again, steel's a great example, example of this. I said that, you know, our steel industry uh, pays 60% more for its energy than competitor countries, which is obviously an enormous issue for the steel industry in trying to, uh, uh, to, to keep going. But, you know, the government has got a package of support for decarbonizing the steel industry but in Stocksbridge for example all our steel comes from electric furnaces it's not possible to be any greener therefore there isn't any support available and you've also got to ask the question well yes of course we want to reduce uh, you know the, the use of carbon in producing steel but at the moment Chinese steel has double the carbon footprint than steel made in Britain. So wouldn't it be far more sensible to invest in British steel production, even if it is produced using carbon, rather than to import Chinese steel? And thirdly, on a kind of national security aspect, do we not want to retain at least some primary steel production in this country in case we are ever in a situation where, for whatever reason, we cannot import steel from the likes of China? So we need to just have a much more honest converse conversation about all the variables involved in the environmental debate and not have this kind of myopic focus on our, on our emissions in the UK, which, of course, we should be doing our best to bring down, but not at the expense of having the kind of economy that can show the world what you can do uh, in terms terms of the improving the environment so i think um yeah we just need to be much more realistic about about what we're doing and you know end the kind of ideological focus on on net zero compared to all the many other things that we can do uh, that would be better for the environment in the long term 
Yeah, I've never quite understood the uh, sense in having more than 50% of the world's steel production in China. I know the Chinese use a lot of steel for their huge construction projects, but the idea of shutting our factories down on the basis of net zero uh, and then it, having it transported in huge fuel oil burning uh, ships from all the way from the Pacific, from a country that you know, gets a lot of its electricity from coal-fired power plants is, um, it's just beyond my logic, I'm afraid. Um, look, I'm, I, I'm going to ask uh, Michael Taylor about this, but I think we're about at the last question here. So I'd like to ask for uh, contributions from our listeners. Please put in a speaker request if you do have a question. I think Miriam's got about 14 more minutes. So if you do want to ask Miriam Kate a question, um, better do it swiftly. Uh, in the meantime, um, the four of us will, or the five of us will continue the conversation. Uh, Michael Taylor, is it perhaps time to um, admit that the UK, you know, even if it went back to the Stone Age tomorrow, would hardly have any effect on uh, global warming or gl environment, environmental change whatsoever? Yes, of course. Anyone who's looked at the data knows that. Um, it's uh, Britain's per capita... CO2 emissions are now down to about the levels of the 1850s. I mean, the idea that, 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 that that's sort of nothing professors out of Oxford calculate making those calculations. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole thing is, frankly, anyone who looks at this knows that what's going on, the whole net zero thing, is, is I, think, I think the word I'd use is moronic. Um, there will always be problems. Uh, CO2 hangs around in the atmosphere for about 300 years. Uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And whatever we do in Britain with our things will make absolutely no difference to, to whatever's going to happen. So all our, all our abilities should be concentrated on being able to adapt well to whatever changes come and to help other people to adapt well to whatever changes come. And to do that, you need wealth, not poverty. Well said, sir. Uh we well we have um a regular listener and good friend here um pangolins would like to ask a question fire away sir uh, thanks um so i mean from listening to all of this i just at the start of this was making a note of like what i would see like in order to have any serious attempt at um fixing or implementing a proper industrial policy in the UK. I think you've got to hit at least five things, some of which have been touched on by William, the planning and Philip, um, the education and the uh, um, redirection of human talent into places that would not solve this. Like at the moment, they are all going into university. But at the moment, I can see that you've got, uh, other than those, there's the eye-watering investment costs that you're going to have to, to, you're going to have to eat in order to solve this. There's the energy costs, which have already been mentioned. We have an ongoing labor shortage, including about 5 million people who are long-term out of work. And then there's the overwhelming problem in the UK at the moment of state capacity, um, which I think even assuming that you could get your head around doing this, at the moment, we've all mentioned, the, or you've all mentioned the problem of South, or SW1, um, but Whitehall like hiring, is both very ideologically committed to hiring more people from the university towns who share that, and they all come from SW1. And at the moment, it appears that there is an ideological in-group preference, which means that you're not going to hire the people who would be best suited to tackle this problem. Um, so 
with that in mind, I guess the question would be, it, and just one further observation, because it, I've, I've been noting a lot, especially in like the budding, or you know, we might say not budding, but you know, the uh, British semiconductor in, industry, that whenever we do have what looks like an exciting IP or an exciting company, what immediately happens is that America comes in and purchases it. So from that, what I think we can see is that if you're going to have an industrial policy worth its salt, you're not only going to have to change the planning laws, change the structure of the educational system, change the structure of government spending and the behavior of government in implementing its policy goals. You're also going to have to alter the personal tax uh, code to like to tempt people out of long term unemployment so that you even have the workers to do it. And you're also going to have to have a hard look at your foreign policy. Because I, Collingwood shared a clip of a, uh, uh, I believe, a French minister talking about how a French company was purchased by the Americans. And that immediately meant that every single email of that company became the product or like became the property of U.S. intelligence. So you're going to have to have a real hard-nosed look about your foreign policy, your tax policy, your spending policy your recruitment and hiring policy and your education policy. And that to me seems like an absolute, an absolutely huge undertaking. Um, so it, it seems like it has to be a full spectrum change to how we operate the government in order to achieve any goals at all here. Um, and then just one further observation, because I know people have been mentioning the, the, the British free trade system and the mercantilist system. Well, I think, I think that a lot of people, especially who are ideological, have this idea that ideology drives behavior and drives action. I think that's a misreading of British history. I think oftentimes ideology is an ex post facto justification for what governments actually do. And that's been the case in Britain since Henry VIII decided that he wanted to get a new wife. Um, so, and one further uh, note, because I think, well, one thing, like we have this idea in Britain that you know, because I know that Miriam has mentioned that privatization per se isn't a problem, but and you know th that's that's maybe true, but I know that um, I've read uh, that at one point the problem even in the UK was that at times when you did have coal mines, etc., even British um, aristocrats um, were pretty extractive. Um, they didn't really consider capital allocation in country to be any more meritorious than putting it anywhere else in the empire. So I think it's been a consistent feature of British policy for you know centuries that quite a lot of the time, whenever it comes time to allocate capital, it's not done near shore. It's done wherever you can get the maximal returns, regardless of the effect on the country. Um, so that's all for now. Uh, well, Miriam, without trying to get you into too much trouble, um, <laughs> uh, we... <laughs> we uh, one of the a couple of the points there raised were first of all the capital allocation for reindustrialization is going to be huge so i guess the first question would be where's that money going to come from and you know because we don't have loads of room to take on a, a a lot more debt right at the moment and the second question would be on state capacity does the british administrative state the civil service any longer have the um, the administrative and bureaucratic muscle uh, to pull this sort of thing off? Well, there's a lot in there, and I can't hope to do that justice in a couple of minutes. But just to, I suppose, to pick up on a, a couple of things. Uh, no, we cannot 
tackle this all at once. And I agree that it's not ideology that, that drives behaviour change. It's actually necessity. Um, and so what we need to do is create the conditions where, um, you know, private wealth by necessity or for advantage invests in the kind of uh, in industry, capital and labour that we really want it to. And I suppose an obvious advantage for this and something that potentially we should have the levers to pull is on immigration. And at the moment, you know, we obviously huge headline a couple of weeks ago, we've had 600,000 net uh, immigration over the past year. Well, if we drastically reduced that and we uh, eliminated kind of uh, free source of cheap labour to businesses, they would have no choice but to invest in uh, in capital and automation and in upskilling British work- workforce. And if at the same time we did, as your listener suggested, change the tax code or change the interaction between tax and welfare that makes it so disadvantaged, to, so disadvantageous for so many to work, then you would start to shift the labour market in the direction where it was both worth it for business and private investors to invest in people and worth it for people to return to work. So I think that we do have some levers that we could we could uh, make some impact with over the short to medium term but yes in terms of the whole piece it is it's a big you know it's a massive ask we are undoing 40 years of of economic and political thinking and it is going to take time to turn the ship around but i'm you know i am i am relatively optimistic because i think you know things like the brexit vote things like covid which showed us uh, the negatives of being so reliant on on globalization have started to shift political thinking yes we are a huge way off uh, you know these policies become coming into force but you know everything happens slowly doesn't it and i think we we've, we've taken those first steps but i think we should use the levers of immigration and tax to start with uh, to make a shift well, I think on that note, uh, Miriam Kate, I will thank you very much for joining us. We're about at the 5.30 mark here. Um, I'd like to advise everybody to uh, give at Miriam underscore Kate, C-A-T-E-S, a follow. Uh, she's new on Twitter and I think deserves, as the rising star of the right, as The Guardian would have it, I think she deserves a very big following. So thanks very much, Miriam Kate, for joining us. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, Philip Pilkington, <laughs> with regard to the um, some of the things that our uh, regular friend um, uh, Pangolins mentioned there, uh, you've been really very concerned about the debt situation in Britain, and especially because we have a, a concurrent fiscal deficit and trade deficit, which makes it all very dangerous indeed. Um, first of all, where can we find the money for reindustrialization? You mentioned subsidies for toasters before or, or other things that we can produce. Where does that money come from? And secondly, does the British state have the administrative muscle anymore to make competent and adept decisions uh, of this type of magnitude? Because to me, frankly, it seems at the minute that the calling the civil service the Rolls-Royce of uh, public bureaucracies is a kind of cruel joke, given their actual performance. Yeah, so the answer to question one about the costs, um, the the problems that Britain has with debt aren't so much the domestic government debt, it's the, it's the foreign debt, and the foreign debt is accumulating due to the trade deficit, right? So any money that the government spends getting the trade deficit down is money well spent. The issue is that the markets don't understand that, I don't think. Um, and so when you see something like trust doing the tax cuts, they freak out. 
Um, they seem to have conflated the two things in their head, even though they shouldn't be conflated, but we're not going to convince them otherwise, not not in this decade anyway. So it's gonna it's pretty hard. I mean, look, we've we've as I said at the very beginning of this whole talk, we've really got to, to end game here. The chickens are gonna come home to roost the next ten years. And they're starting to already. Um I'd say in terms of getting the money, I mean, again I'm going to focus on this big green blob. It gets a lot of money. I haven't done the numbers for the UK. I've looked at the I looked at the Inflation Reduction Act. It was enormous amounts of money. Obviously, we haven't proposed a capital investment project like that, but I can just bet from all the stuff I see around that there's an awful lot of government resources going into this stuff. So that might be something worth rating. The second point ties in to the uh, civil service. Um, I don't think the civil service is competent enough to do this. Not not on your nally, frankly. Um, this they they pursue ideological projects like green projects because honestly, you don't have to evaluate them, right? Because they're almost moralistic in the investment style. You don't have to actually evaluate them. You don't have to evaluate them on productivity. You don't have to evaluate them based on use and so on. You see this especially with bicycle lanes. I'm actually kind of a fan of bicycle lanes because they really work out for me where I'm currently living. But no one assesses them relative to the traffic on the bicycle lanes. And my impression is some of them aren't used at all, or they're used extremely infrequently. So that's just one example of how this kind of moralistic investment style is now being used to paper over a very, very incompetent civil service. So, well, the two things I think, this is where, this is where my idea about using private equity comes in. Um, private equity is pretty good at allocating capital. It, it can... It, it's also very agnostic in how it does it. It can be very extractive, but it can also be quite creative. Um, and I think we have massive pools of private capital in this country. We have the largest pension funds and so on, you know, big pension, not the largest, but one of the largest pension fund pools in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And there's just a ton of capital in search of somewhere to, to, to invest. That's why housing market prices are so high, in my opinion. Um, I think a lot of that could be channeled into doing this. Um, what it would require is incentives for the private equity companies themselves to do it. So you'd have to make these investments more attractive than what they're currently doing. That might mean, for example, giving more preferential terms on carried interest. Now, that's controversial to say because Labour are saying right now that they're going to eliminate carried interest. Another moralistic posture policy that won't do anything. It'll just cause the funds to flee. So what you could do is you could retool those to try and direct the investment. Now, they will do it based on profitability of the companies. But that leads to the second question. The profitability of the companies, they're not being made currently because they're, they're, the costs are too high. Most, mostly labor costs will be my guess. So you will need a subsidy. So, so all you'd need then for the, the not-so-great civil service to do is to highlight the, um, as I said, what imports uh, are currently coming in in large quantities, which of them are substitutable domestically, and we need to know that we have the capacity to do that, the engineering talent to do that, the management talent to do that. And if it checks all the boxes, check the subsidy box, and then carve out some nice little uh, arrangement for uh, private equity capital to do the job. That's how I think this needs to get done, or some variant thereof. Um, I'm not saying that that'll be free. The subsidies will be quite expensive. And of course, that goes back to, well, you're going to have to 
raid the bank here. You're, you're, it, 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 it's what Pangolin's saying. I mean, it is going to have to be a very aggressive policy, and it will require a level of aggression with the current state that we haven't seen since Margaret Thatcher. Obviously, a very different type of aggression, but we haven't seen since Margaret Thatcher. I mean, the, the government would have to kind of go to war with the state, in a sense, would be my sense. William Clouston, um, you have called consistently for years now for greater state capacity. You would like the state to do more. Uh, you believe the state has a rightful play, you know, that the private sector has a rightful place uh, to play in the economy and that the state should largely stay out of that. But the state very much has a, a place in things like home building, but also industrial policy. What would your response be to Philip Pilkington to, to bring some of the, the private equity boys in who don't get the greatest of press at the moment uh, into the kind of capital allocation that we would need. And, and where would you find the money? Because you, you know, you've done a, uh, you know, the end of indifference, the uh, SDP's green paper is, is, is fully costed, I believe. So where would you find the money? Well, on the first point, um, on Philip's point, I mean, private equity should be doing that anyway. And it, it's part of the process, you know, uh, of, of, um, venture capital to 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 you know in, invest properly and get a proper return. So um, I would never be against that. I mean, in relation to the state, I've only uh, I've always the point I've always made is I'm not actually asking for very much. I'd want a competent state that does the things that the state should do, not what the uh, private sector should do. Ordinary goods and services should always be uh, provided by the private sector, but the states are. Uh, fallen down in the areas that, that it should have been its purview and um people talk about state capacity well the state uh, has retreated uh, and uh, into a position of, of taxing and regulating but it actually isn't very competent at doing anything and so the biggest macroeconomic problem we have domestically is housing uh, and you can have lots of think tanks uh, produce lots of stuff about the planning system and other zoning policies and all the rest of it but actually the real cause of the uh, housing crisis is apart from mass migration which has recently has put massive pressure on is the collapse in state capacity in house building and you you argue for it i mean the the the, uh, the state used to outbuild the private sector regularly i think the last year that, that happened was 1970 um but it, it used to be, be able to do this and if you argue if you say well the state can't build houses you're arguing that the state can't do what a small family business does. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just ludicrous. You, you, you can, if you, I, I always get back to this point, you can if you want to. If you, if you, if you actually have a policy of wanting to do it and you do it, uh, it's possible. Um, well, on, on the question of money, funnily enough, I mean, I think we, 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 we've, we've, we're trying to be honest with the public about the, the addictions that the, that the state has. And, you know, a lot of people put it down to sort of late stage liberalism and, you know, we're, we've just got fat and we get other people to make our things and, and prop us up. But uh, the, the addictions we've got are debt and mass migration. And uh, it costs you nothing, actually, to get your policy corrected uh, in, the, in those respects. For instance, I mean, it shouldn't be at all surprising that if you uh, if you have a policy of being part of a massive labor market, uh, freedom of movement of 450 million workers that uh, you know uh, training your own workers is completely disincentivized i mean that's your, that's been our policy in the eu 
And we shouldn't be surprised that you end up with 5.2 million people on out-of-work benefits. It's just, it's just easier and quicker. It's a shortcut, a, short, a sort of a shortcut to, to getting a good employee is just to import one uh, and forget about training our own people. But that is just another, yet another very, very short-term reaction to something, which in the end, there will be a, a bump and a correction, a, a major correction, because you, you, you're just building up debt. You're not dealing with a problem. It's easier to, to as I say, to, to sort of cash in on on some other uh, state that's trained a nurse, whatever, and just import them. Um, it, it always, I always talk about cultural issues because the ultimately a lot of these things are cultural. I remember after the financial crisis in '08, I think it was Howard Davies wrote a book and uh, with lots of books analysing it. And he, I think he had 42 chapters in the book and uh, identified 42 causes of the financial crisis. Uh, and it, it was an interesting read, but the, in fact, there was only one cause. There, there is only ever one cause for this stuff, which is the tendency for human beings to think there's more on the table than there is. <laughs> that is the cause. That is always the cause. And in relation to public policy here, the cause is short-termism. We would sooner import cheap Chinese goods than, than uh, bother to make them. We would, we would sooner just borrow a bit of money to instead of dealing with your trade deficit uh, and so on and so forth. The same with migration. Uh, and But eventually, it will come back and bite you. And, and as I say, as a political offer, what we're trying to do is to say, well, some of these things are cultural. You've got to face up to them. And at the next election, you'll be offered a choice between the same old stuff, which has failed, and you're going to have a bad bump pretty soon. Or you could elect someone that is actually going to be honest with you. It might be a little painful in the short term, but you need to uh, readjust and you need to ex face up to some of these things instead of constantly using the sort of short term fix. Well, I'm going to bring in uh, Michael Taylor of uh, The Long March. But uh, speaking of people who write uh, excellent uh, substacks on industrial policy. I also know that we've got um, uh, Rian C. Witten here, or Rian C. Witten, who writes uh, Dr. Sin, which is a fantastic uh, substack. I learned a lot about the steel industry just recently reading it. Um, so I'd love to invite him to uh, have his say. He also works for Bismarck Analysis. Uh, but Michael Taylor, uh, fire away, sir. Yeah. Um, the question, you know, I I'm going to go back again, to, the, uh, to how Singapore did it, uh, because they did something very, very sensible, which is they put in a, a compulsory uh, mandatory provident fund, whereby instead of having this alleged national insurance, which is plainly uh, a Ponzi scheme, which has <laughs> got loads of unfunded liabilities, instead of which you, you have a proper uh, mandatory provident fund, uh, which builds up your own account. So you pay in the same amount, you build the same, but, but the, the, that money goes to your account, which you can then, under various circumstances, uh, uh, take money from. Now, what that does, of course, it means that then that has to, that, um, that, that, that account, that money that you give, then has to earn an interest. Aha! Which then begins to uh, answer some questions about, well, is this project worth it? Is this green project worth it? Do I really want all my money to go into loss-making green projects or do I want it to go into other infrastructure developments? So I, 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 I think that if you had that sort of thing, A, it would 
give an incentive for people to work because if you're in work, then guess what? Your mandatory provident, your CPF fund is growing every month. Hurrah, I can see it. It's in my account. So you're building a saving culture there. And that saving culture, of course, then automatically um, builds uh, a degree of investment criteria sensitivity, uh, which would basically disbar uh, a lot of the madness and idiocy and stupidity of, uh, of, of, of current administrative priorities. Uh, you know, yeah, sure, invest. Is it making me any, me any money? No, we'll stop investing in it then. And I'd rather have that um, where... You know, you get an incentive to work, you start building a savings culture, and, of course, you get more transparency in how money is, is, is used. And most importantly of all, you, you strip out one of the most obvious Ponzi scheme elements of British finance. So, you know, you, you could do that on day one. I wish Miriam was, was on here and said, Miriam, scrap national insurance, or rather make it a proper insurance fund so that, so that people can actually benefit. Because at the moment, the only people who benefit from national insurance are the Treasury, and we know how good they are. Well, I think if uh, Miriam defending the institution of marriage had the Guardian up in arms, then God only knows what they would do if she decided she wanted to scrap national insurance and bring in private savings accounts instead. Um, but Philip Pilkington, I mean, that's a really good point, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if we look at the... The, the sort of economies that export and have trade surpluses, they have the corresponding savings surpluses. They have more savings cultures, don't they? Um, I mean, is that a key aspect of the uh, jigsaw puzzle here? Is that a key piece of the jigsaw puzzle that Britain needs to get off its kind of um, its pathway of increasing standards of living by expanding the amount of debt we all have as as a state, as businesses, as, as consumers, and move more towards a savings culture, which then through, say, the banks, or as you mentioned, private equity, as kind of inter economic intermediaries, can then allocate that into uh, productive investment in the British economy. Well, we're, uh, we're 10 minutes over state of time, and you succeeded in highlighting one of the most controversial questions in macroeconomics. So congratulations on that one. <laughs> um, do investments precede savings or savings precede investments? Well, it's been a debate in macroeconomics for about 100 years since Keynes wrote the general theory. Um, I, think, I think broadly here, we're, we're, talking about, we're talking about two different tracks. It would a greater savings culture help? Um, it would in so far as it reduced consumption on foreign goods, uh, in so far as it contracted imports. Um, if savings don't do that, declines in real wages will do it for us. So it's, it's a bit tit for tat, really. Um, I, think, I think the problem here is that, that we want to be careful conflating private savings and government savings or government dis-savings, because governments rarely save. Um, the public sector in the country right now does seem to be constrained. I mean, it's a little bit of an open secret that the capital markets are in charge uh, at the moment. Um, we act like they're not. We pretend like we're not in the situation of, you know, Ireland post-financial crisis. We pretend we're not in a quasi-1976 situation. Well, we are. I mean, that's the reality. Um 
so the government spending is constrained by that. Now, I think the markets are slightly misreading the debt situation, but that's what the markets are doing, so it doesn't matter. In terms of private savings, or at least private um, financial investment, if you want to put it that way, capital, not capital investment, but financial portfolio allocation, there's a lot of money out there. And this is what I was saying about the private equity stuff. There is actually a lot of, of money sloshing around. People, I mean, I, again, I don't want to dust off another giant debate, but it's my opinion that the housing market isn't actually being driven by supply shortages at all in this country. It's being driven by people plowing investment capital into it because interest rates have been so low for 10 years. And interest rates are so low because the private saving is a sector is hoarding. I mean, that's what causes stagnation between 2009 and the recent bout of inflation. Um, so I think that there's plenty of private capital that just needs to be reallocated. I mean, that's effectively what we're talking about here. And to reallocate that private capital, you have to, in, you have to incentivize it to go into those places. So that needs to be, as I said, some combination of tax incentives. My preference will be for private equity vehicles because they're very nimble and very flexible and you can target them very easily. Tax incentives for them and then subsidies at the bottom to bring up, to bring down the costs and make, for example, our mythical toaster factory equivalent in unit labor costs to a Chinese one or whoever we're competing with in that sector. You just mark to market the wage costs and you engage in the subsidy. It's that simple. And then you and then you direct the, the, the private capital. The issue is the subsidies. I mean, that's that's the issue because they're going to have to come off the government balance balance sheet. And there's, I don't think there's any way of getting around that. I, I think I think using the um, uh, uh, Singaporean model, it wouldn't work for subsidies because they don't generate investment income, if you see what I mean. Th those sorts of savings accounts, or even the pensions themselves, could be channeled into the profitable private equity vehicles. They might even go there naturally, actually, if you, if you get good returns and you have good incentive structure in place. But it doesn't solve the subsidy problem. The subsidies and the tax credits have to come from the government balance sheet. And at this point in Britain right now, when the capital markets are calling the tune, that means cuts elsewhere. That's, that's, just, that's just the way of it. So those cuts need to come in. They need to come in hard and fast. And, and they, need, they need to be, I think that they need to be in the capital budget side. And we have to, again, as I emphasize, re-examine this moralistic investment style that we're engaged in while we're marching off a cliff, because it's actually crazy. Right, well, Philip has already chastened me for going over time. So I think what I'll do is I'll ask William first and then Michael and then Philip for some closing comments. If you want to take a few minutes to um, make any further points, uh, perhaps summarize what we've spoken about. Uh, William first. Uh, thanks very much. Yeah, I'll be very brief. Um, I think every 30, 40 years, you get a, a major shift in policy thinking, what's inside policymakers' heads. And I think we're headed for one because of just the facts on the ground, what, what actually is happening. And, uh, you know, we, we, we can't go on as we're going on. So perforce uh, you're seeing this, and it'll be the death of uh, a sort of species of free trade liberalism and purism, which we've lived with an indifference to anything, basically, and just leave it to the market. Uh, it's also the end of a, a stupid uh, 
hostility to planning and state planning of any type. Uh, successful industrial economies plan. Uh, so we're, we'll see a shift, and, and uh, it'll it'll have to happen. Uh, I think as long as we get policy right, uh, and we want, and we have a we have a political class that get it finally, and you get this switch, I think we could do very very well. But you, I always get back to the same thing: you've got to have a political class who actually want to do this stuff. And we're not there yet, but it's sort of coming. So I'm reasonably optimistic that. Uh, this sort of zombie neoliberalism we've had to live with is is dying, and uh, as I've said before, not before time. Michael Taylor, uh, I'm going to mainly be a toehead for William. I, my, my, almost everything William says, I agree with. Um, I'll just add a couple of things. Um, you know, there will be problems. There are problems, but. Uh, if we have the will uh, and the intellect and the imagination to try and solve those problems, then there will be solutions. They may not be easy, but you know they will be available. And what William says is just completely correct. What we don't have at the moment is the is is the political determination to seize seize these problems and deal with them. And until we get that, um, well, you know, we're moribund. But it'll come because it has to come. So. To sum up, there are problems, but there will be solutions. I hope so. Philip Pilkington. Yeah, just very briefly to to play into that. I think a real key thing that we can start doing here is trying to start make the public aware of what the consequences of not acting are. Okay, and I write about it a lot on Unheard. Um, This notion that uh, an unfinanced trade deficit if capital flows stop uh, financing that trade deficit, means uh, gradually collapsing sterling, means falling real wages. And we've already seen some of this happen in the past 10 years, but it could get a lot worse. And I think really communicating that to the public, if we do not sort this out, like this should be just standard operating procedure in Britain. In 1976, this was widely discussed, widely understood. Fairly similar situation. If we don't solve this, living standards will fall dramatically. I really think that word needs to get out. Yeah, I agree with that. We have discussed before, Philip and I, that uh, when we talk about falling living standards, um, you know, we're talking about the sort of thing that, you know, we're not talking about going back to the Great Depression, but something like Eastern Europe has now where middle-class people actually don't live anywhere near as well as middle-class people in the UK. And it's quite surprising to go there where you see, you know, engineers and middle managers and they simply don't live as well as as lower middle class people in the UK. And and that's the sort of thing that we might be looking at if we continue down this uh, quite increasingly frightening path. Um, I'd just like to say, though, uh, I'd like to first of all thank everybody who contributed, including Miriam. Uh, Miriam Cates is new to Twitter, so if everybody could follow her at at Miriam underscore Kates, that's C-A-T-E-S. Uh, I'd also like to recommend people uh, visit the Social Democratic Party's website, sdp.org.uk, I believe, and look up the end of indifference. It's a green paper. It's very nicely written, very accessible about economics and industrial policy. And I think it's one of the very few uh, interesting and creative and well-considered efforts 
to look at some of the changes that we could make to improve our industrial uh, capacity and also look up uh, Philip Pilkington, uh, follow him here, uh, follow his uh, regular column in Unheard, which is always uh, thought-provoking and um, and well thought through. Uh, you can also listen to Philip and I on the Multipolarity Podcast, which on Twitter is at MultipolarPod. And this entire spaces will be going up on the Multipolarity Podcast. You can listen to that on YouTube, uh, Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, once again, for contributing. Thanks to Pangolins for uh, his contribution. And I hope to uh, reconvene this sort of discussion again soon because it's been enlightening, illuminating, and interesting. Farewell, everybody. Enjoy the rest of uh, your Monday evening. Thanks very much.